A subscription to the China Africa Project's email newsletter is like getting a daily China Africa intelligence briefing delivered straight to your inbox every weekday at 6 a.m. Washington time. You'll get an in-depth review of everything going on in politics, trade, tech, culture, and more. And we don't just focus only on Africa, but also the Middle East and what China's doing throughout the Global South. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. After that, subscriptions are just $7 a month for teachers and students and $15 a month for everyone else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, just before we get started, I want to give a big welcome to Marina, Joanna, and Carl, our newest members this week in our Patreon community. Thank you all so much for signing up and joining the community. We've started, by the way, the new weekly digest that goes out only to our patrons on Fridays, and that's only available now on Patreon. So if you want to get this new weekly digest that we're putting out of the Top China Africa News, go over to Patreon. We'll also be reaching out to everyone to schedule our monthly Zoom calls. And there's just a great group forming over there. So come on over, patreon.com slash China Africa Project to sign up. And of course, a huge thank you to all of you who are already members of the community. And Kobus, very quickly, also before we get started, I want to bring everybody up to date on a story that we're keeping a close eye on over on the site, and that's the rapidly deteriorating security situation in Ethiopia. For those of you who are not aware, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has declared a state of emergency. And as of this recording midweek, Tigrayan forces coming down from the north now have some new momentum and may soon make their way to the capital, Addis Ababa. All week, we've been looking at the geopolitical implications of what's going on in Ethiopia. And and it really started with U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, who announced that she's put Ethiopia, along with Mali and Guinea, on a 60-day countdown notice for them to take what she called urgent action, that's her, her words there, before she removes the AGOA trade privileges that give these countries duty-free access to the U.S. market. Now, the Chinese have been very outspoken criticizing U.S. sanctions on Ethiopia and have been blocking any statements or motions coming out of the U.N. They call the situation in Ethiopia an internal affair and therefore not subject to any U.N. jurisdiction or intervention. And we wrote this week about this and how much is at stake for the Chinese in Ethiopia. It's one of the largest destinations in Africa for private sector manufacturing investment. There are deep ties with state-run companies like Ethiopian Airlines and Ethiopia Telecom. And let's not forget that Ethiopia is second only to Angola in terms of how much money it still owes China. So this is a super important story that we're keeping an eye on for subscribers over on the website and in the newsletter. So go and check it out if you're interested in what's going on. So, Kobus, 
that situation in Ethiopia highlights the difficulties that we're having now in assessing China's role in the world and how people perceive the Chinese. Some people on one side of the story are going to look at what's happening in Ethiopia and say the Chinese are blocking this and they're complicit in this. Other people are going to say China's supporting the Ethiopians and thank God they're there. And it turns out that these perceptions of China really depends on where you actually live in the world, physically, where you are in the world. What people think of China is almost diametrically opposite in developing countries in the global south than what it is in advanced economies in the global north. Let's start in Africa. So Afrobarometer just completed its eighth round of surveys. They've done this between 2019 and 2021. They've done 48,084 face-to-face interviews across 34 countries. They must be exhausted. 33% of respondents rank the United States as their favored model, while 22% prefer to emulate China. Afrobarometer also asked respondents how much influence China's economic activities have on their own country's economy. 61% say some or a lot. And by the way, that's down 12 percentage points since their last survey in 2014-2015. Here's the kicker. Asked whether China's influence is mostly positive or negative, 63% say it is somewhat or very positive, and just 60% say the same about the United States. Very similar situation in the Middle East and North Africa. Arab Barometer, another agency, from their survey in July 2020, and I'll quote them here, The survey results find that China is the most popular global power in MENA, with citizens being more open to stronger ties than they are with the U.S. or Russia. On average, those living in MENA are 13 points more likely to favor closer economic ties with China than the U.S. And it's pretty much the same here in Southeast Asia, where according to a 2020 study by the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, which is of course part of the Singapore government, 7 out of 10 ASEAN states rated China more favorably than the U.S. But the story totally changes when we venture up north and where negative views of China now are at all-time highs. Here are some of the unfavorable ratings according to Pew Research's latest study. 80% negative in Sweden, 77% negative in South Korea, 76% in the U.S., 72% in Holland, and 71% in Germany. And it's pretty much the same across the board among wealthier advanced economies And my guess is it's only getting worse. So, Cobus, this is yet another one of those Rorschach tests where it's just incredible to see how much it varies on your perceptions of China depending on where you are in the world. Yes, it's really fascinating to see. Uh, you know, kind of I think I think a lot of it also has to do with with the particular kind of tra- tra- trajectory, sorry, I can never say that word. Um, you know, kind of one is preoccupied with in one's country, right? So, you know, if if one is really ob- obsessed with development, um, like many global south countries are, and particularly many African countries are, then a, a greater China presence in the world is great, right? Kind of like it, it, it at the very least it offers an extra opportunity or extra set of opportunities if one is Canada or Australia or particularly the US then the trajectory you're obsessed with is is one of maintaining you know kind of global control or maintaining a, a kind of a leadership position and threats there too um, you know and, for, and from that perspective the, the, the situation then looks a lot different and then you know kind of a, each individual micro skirmish and macro skirmish 
establish that that develops with China, whether it be you know Chinese in, like internal human rights issues, like pressure on diaspora people, pressure on directly on governments and so on. It, it feeds into a particular kind of narrative, you know, kind of 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 a, a, a kind of a global a global kind of portion of control that is that, that there's a fight around. You know, so I think I think you know kind of it's, it's very interesting to see it playing out to these kind of mirror images of each other. Of each other. Well, there's a new book that's out, China Unbound, A New World Disorder, that covers a lot of this ground. The author, Joanna Chu, is a senior journalist at Canada's largest newspaper, The Toronto Star. Before she moved back to Canada, Joanna spent seven years in Beijing and Hong Kong as a foreign correspondent for Agence France Presse. And she's also done extensive reporting for the South China Morning Post, The Economist, and the AP, among many others. Also, Joanna is the founder of the excellent resource New Voices, an international editorial collective that focuses on women's voices in the China discourse. Joanna, a very good morning to you, and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, good morning, Eric and Kobus. Thank you so much for having me. Longtime fan of your podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much, and it's wonderful to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this for almost four or five months now. I remember I, I emailed you back as soon <laughs> yeah. as I heard that the book was coming out and, and great to have you on the show. And I want to speak to this issue about the perceptions of China that we kind of talked about depending on where you are. Your book covers a lot of ground. You went to Australia, Canada, Greece, Russia, the U.S., Turkey, more places that you covered in the book. What did you find in your research when you were in those different countries about the various perceptions of China? I just opened up that Pew Research survey about the latest survey on opinions in China. And I was interested to see that two of the countries I visited in Europe, Italy and Greece, even though negative opinions have increased, they're still among the more favorable uh, populations in in Europe, uh, places where there is a relatively more favorable view of China. Um, so what I found when I went to Italy and Greece was that most people, even people who were working on think tanks that were focused on Asia, admitted that they weren't paying much attention to human rights and politics in China. They were primarily interested in understanding how to do business in China and how to help Italian or Greek businesses succeed. And you know, I brought up Xinjiang, I brought up Hong Kong, people said things like, you know, I should read up more about that. But it, it seemed like it honestly didn't really cross their minds. It, it hasn't been like a large part of uh, their national conversation on China. Um, in 2019, I followed on the heels of Xi Jinping's visits in both countries. And, you know, his visits were very, very popular. It seemed to really uh, garner a lot of support among the public. And, media articles saying that China was going to invest in all of these different ports and uh, industries, factories. There's a lot of optimism as if because these two countries are particularly struggling economically, that Beijing could be could kind of swoop in and become a really um, exciting and helpful partner. One of the points that you make in the book is how you know, Chinese diaspora communities end up in a very kind of uncomfortable positions, you know, kind of squeezed between different kind of opposing forces. And, and you know, kind of you, you, you spent, you know, a lot of attention on Australia and, and Canada in, the, in that respect. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about the role of those diaspora communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so perhaps in, in um, Central Southern Europe, part of that, you know, speaking of journalists there is that 
there's relatively few numbers, members of the Chinese diaspora informing these discussions, perhaps that's the reason why uh, some of it hasn't been particularly layered and nuanced so far. Um, but looking at countries like Canada and Australia and the US when there are very large uh, Chinese diaspora communities, you know, these communities have been warning and talking for years about how their members who are critical of Beijing have received direct or indirect uh, pressure to to stop uh, their free speech, even though they are foreign citizens uh, outside of China. Here in Canada, people have talked about getting physical visits from Chinese embassy officials uh, to say, stop talking about Hong Kong, stop going to events in support of Hong Kong democracy, using as leverage in different cases, the fact that their family members still reside in China or greater China, or that, you know, so they have some business links to China, which many members of the diaspora do. And it really, I think, didn't take a lot of public attention uh, until the two Michaels were arrested as political pawns by China uh, after the Huawei situation. Can you explain who the two Michaels are, just for audience who may not be familiar? Yeah. So Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver were two Canadian men who were arrested on kind of really vague national security charges uh, just over a week after Huawei technology CFO uh, Meng Wanzhou was detained in the Vancouver airport. You know, the U.S. Justice Department had requested that Canadian authorities detain her so that she could be... You know, it was an extradition request, which Beijing felt was very, very insulting. She was basically royalty as a senior executive for China's national champion, this company. Um, so the two Michaels were taken. Uh, and I think around the world, they received this news um, was received with a lot of just like shock and outrage and going to Australia because I was, you know, traveling around the world in the aftermath in the months uh, after this happened, people in Australia and were very frank, like we knew these things happened in the past, uh, but they tended to happen to people of Asian descent or, you know, dual citizen or people who weren't white, basically. So I think China deliberately targeted a couple people who were relatable to the elite in many Western countries. And this really sparked more talk about Beijing's increasingly aggressive foreign policy, and as well as its uh, internal lack of rule of law. Before we get on to more about middle power and some of the issues that came up with the Michaels, I just want to stay with the the diaspora community and the ethnic Chinese communities overseas, because in many ways you wrote about in the book how they're squeezed between two different worlds. So on the one hand, historically, those communities have been very important for business relationships and for China to, especially when it was first going out into the world in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, it leveraged that diaspora community and it was very successful doing that. Today now, the the world that we live in, as you said, there's pressure on certain members of the community, but other and this has certainly been the case in the United States, where the racism that has been generated from the fear about China and also because of people like Donald Trump who were using COVID and, and saying derogatory things, that sparked just the most 
awful racist backlash against Asian Americans, and in many cases, the most vulnerable Asian Americans, elderly Asian Americans and Chinese Americans on the streets of places like Oakland and New York and whatnot. Talk to us about that that vice that, that many of the Asian diaspora and specifically the Chinese diaspora are in where they're getting pressure from both sides, seen as foreigners uh, in their own homelands and at the same time viewed with suspicion by, by China in the Chinese community. I really felt like that was a major crux of the problems. Of That's why the subtitle of the book is A New World Disorder. Just the state of affairs in many Western countries, which is really the fault of leaders and people living in Western societies, that these people are in such a terrible situation, caught in a vice between you know two things. And I myself, growing up in Vancouver, which you would think is a pretty cosmopolitan city, you know, my whole family, like we received discrimination. Um, I would be called random slurs on the street walking around as a teenager. And you don't feel that you're accepted into these societies wherever you are, basically, as someone Asian. People would often comment like, oh, your English is good. Why? <laughs> as if that was, um, it would be surprising since I grew up in Canada, just because I look foreign to them. And they wouldn't accept that I was Canadian. When I replied that I was Canadian, they would keep asking the question until I said some Asian country that would satisfy them. And at the same time, this plays completely into what the CCP wants because it has, you know, basically laid claim to the Chinese diaspora, people who have settled outside of China for generations. Um, I think it's partly out of fear and uh, insecurity that criticism from the outside, particularly from the Chinese diaspora, would make a disproportionate large impact on domestic Chinese opinion, um, you know, because people of the diaspora uh, tend to still be able to speak the language. So, you know, a direct um, communication with people um, domestically in China might um, spur more dissent or unhappiness or dissatisfaction with living under the CCP. In the book, you focus a lot on, on the situation of, of middle powers and particularly uh, some key um, Western middle powers like, like, like Canada and, and Australia. How do you feel those, those countries should have played their relationship with China differently over, over the last 10, 20 years? You know, kind of like where, where, did, where did that, where did they kind of, where did the lapses come in? So when people talk about middle powers, I think they mostly emphasize that middle powers aren't as strong uh, or powerful as the superpowers. But middle powers, you know, in IR theory actually describes a state that's not a global giant, but still has significant influence. Uh, Canada and Australia are some uh, good examples. Uh, Although Canada has a very pretty low population of less than 40 million people. Um, Canada punches above its weight in the international community, you know, being rich in national resources, having a seat on the G7, being a key member of NATO. Um, So kind of the excuse that um, some countries seem to be using that they're too small to make a difference, um, you know, when it comes to middle powers, a lot of analysts think that's actually not the case. There could have... Um, been a lot done uh, in regards to their policies on China um, earlier before it reached this crisis point, uh, such as with Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels in Canada's case. 
in Australia as well. Uh, I found in my travels there and speaking with stakeholders and politicians who've kind of seen it evolve over the years, that Australia also had this mentality that um, thinking about the politics of China really wasn't up to them, that their goal for years was to expand trade ties with China as much as possible um, to the point where in 2015, a government, so kind of like a provincial government of Australia and the Northern Territory, announced that a Chinese company would take over its port for 99 years in an Australian $500 million deal. And this was struck between the regional government and the private Chinese company without the oversight or say-so of the federal government. So this was quite embarrassing because this was not that long ago and the federal government did not even have the ability to to know when part a key infrastructure like a port uh, was leased to a Chinese company for 99 years. And the billionaire owner of this company said that it was a strategic acquisition for Beijing that would serve China's goal of expanding uh, the new Silk Road, um, which is not necessarily nefarious, but this is, again, all done without um, the knowledge of federal authorities. Um, but this would might be surprising to some of us that are just kind of starting to pay attention to the conversations more recently because Australia uh, has since, you know, done a 180. Now it's one of the most confrontational um, and active countries when it comes to working um, against its perceived threats of China foreign interference, passing a suite of foreign interference laws that was very clear um, in interviews around uh, these laws that they were directed at China. Um, to the point where actually the conversation in Australia, some say have gotten almost too much in a different direction where it is quite hawkish and uh, now quite sweeping and heated. So middle powers, it seemed for a long time, did not think of these issues and now um, are under a lot of pressure to act. And I think a lot of people in many of these countries feel that they lost a lot of time. They could have, you know, played their relationship differently with China over the last 20, 20 years. They could have uh, paid more attention to members of the Chinese diaspora who were warning that Chinese officials were intimidating them and their families. But now um, they're, it's almost like these countries are playing catch up. Let's stay with that a little bit. And, and the Chinese have this old saying, it's, it's a cliche now, that kill a chicken to scare the monkeys. And the idea is that we're going to show what we've done to Australia and Canada, which are, as middle powers go, very, very wealthy middle powers. Okay, And then if you're a smaller middle power, say a Kenya, mm -hmm. an Ethiopia, or South, some South American countries, look what, what we did with Canada and Australia. And this can happen to you if you cross some of our red mm -hmm. lines. Those red lines are what I call the 4THKXJS. The line is getting longer. That's Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen Square, the party, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, South China Sea. Mm -hmm. Cross those lines and all of a sudden the middle power syndrome, as you've kind mm -hmm. of detailed in the book, come true. If somebody from the China desk at the Kenyan foreign ministry said, Joanna, mm -hmm. you've looked at middle powers. We are a lower middle power, but we're in that space. Yeah. What would yeah. you advise us in how to manage our relations with 
with China on these issues. What, based on the experience of Canada and, and, and even to some extent Italy as well and Greece, how would you advise some of these smaller, lower and middle powers to, to deal with China? I think, you know, that's a complex question. I think I would, <laughs> if I were an advisor, I would have more than one conversation sure. um, with the government. Um, but, you know, what was interesting reporting on the ground in Italy and Greece uh, was that it seemed that a lot of people, including key government advisors who were members of the business community, seem to really overestimate the impact of um, Chinese investment, uh, particularly in Italy when, you know, many of these proposed Belt and Road projects um, have not, you know, come to fruition, have not progressed, or they were not actually real to begin with, uh, but they were reported with, like, glowingly in the press. Um, so I think just starting by being really clear about what exactly the relation relationship is and what kind of even the very economic trade deals that are taking place, like what are their actual uh, effects uh, and not hyping it up and, you know, making them so disproportionate. In Canada, even though it has had a really long re trade relationship with China, you know, total trade with China still makes up about only 6%. The U.S. is by far Canada's top trade partner. So... I think there's some sort of distortion there about how much leverage Beijing really does have on an economic side. Well, I guess that's one of the big differences in a place like Africa, where I think 40 out of 54 countries, the largest trading partner is China. And so the, the, asymm the asymmetries that you talked about in the book are more pronounced in the global south than they are, say, maybe in these middle powers in the global north. So what happened in Greece, I guess, in, in the as far as a Western country that does have a lot more reliance on China. China has, we know with austerity measures imposed by the EU, Beijing stepped in, provided a lot of funding to state-owned Greek national infrastructure, including the state grid, as well as the Port of Piraeus. And there, what Greece has done, they have proactively provided some allyship on the, on the political side. So in 2016, Athens stopped the European Union from issuing a unified statement against Beijing's aggression in the South China Sea. In 2017, Athens again surprised the UN by vetoing a high-profile EU criticism of human rights abuses in China. So I think what that kind of brings up is, you know, Greece is one of these Western countries that have more reliance on China, and they seem to be, you know, proactively allying politically. And the question is, in the global south, um, in Africa, where China is actually uh, the number one trade partner, whether those pressures to choose to politically side with Beijing on these, you know, big international forums will also occur. Like, is that what you've seen in Africa or is it more complicated than that? I, I guess what it's more, it's much more complicated than that. What, what we've been looking at over the years is that m most African countries just don't see this as their fight. And that's the same here in Southeast Asia as well. We've spoken with a number of Southeast Asian experts who look at the Xinjiang issue, for example, and even in countries that are Muslim majority like Malaysia and Indonesia, they just don't see this isn't their fight. And and so and and what I wrote an article last year called the Jay Z Rule of Foreign Policy, which is countries in Africa have ninety nine problems and Xinjiang is just not one of them. And so why pick a fight on an issue where there's no domestic pressure? There's no constituency in Botswana that's demanding 
Mm-hmm. Even if there are countries that are Muslim, large Muslim population. It's in here's the here's the key issue that China has has targeted these countries with great effect. So they go to the Arab Street in Cairo, and it was in Wang Yi's visit last year. He starts every year in the first overseas trip is to Africa. He started it in 2020 in Cairo, brought the Xinjiang message to Cairo, was embraced by the Egyptian foreign ministry and the Egyptian presidency. It's the same in Chad. It's the same in Tunisia. Go across the Arab world. There is no objection, even in Saudi Arabia, the home to Mecca Medina, nothing, because they don't see this as their fight. And so it's not even that I don't think the Chinese have to apply the pressure because there is no need to it, because there's no domestic pressure from coming from the bottom up. And do you think it's partly because people in these countries see what has happened to places like Canada or Australia or also the U.S.? Yeah, like, you know, kind of from my perspective, they like African countries pick fights with China, you know, kind of so. So it's 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 not that it's not a situation where it where it kind of just just they they just let everything slide because they're so so kind of scared of China. But they they, they pick fights particularly on on relation in relation to domestic issues, like for example the you know the the ongoing kind of issues um, on the environmental and labor fronts in in several African countries with Chinese companies. Um, you know, kind of I think African countries in, in general tend to there, there's very little. Experience expectation for them to play a kind of big international role you know kind of the only the only kind of african country that that kind of like takes that role on itself to a certain extent is south africa and i think they've they stepped away from it <laughs> to a large extent for a lot of complicated reasons um so 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 i think it does have an impact you know so it's like yeah don't don't kind of piss off china they you know kind of they 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 you know kind of they're not they're not scared to kill trade relations for example i think that that is clear you know from from the australian case but but, you know, kind of what I was actually, Joanna, what I wanted to ask you is how successful do you feel these these Chinese tactics have been? Because, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, it, it seems to, they, they seem to, to, it seems to kind of be informed by a kind of a logic of like, oh, people will be so scared, they'll kind of step away from it. Whereas, whereas you know, I think that a lot of the effect has been to heighten heighten attention on these issues, to, to strengthen coalitions in relation to them, to put pressure on Western companies all of a sudden to like withdraw from Xinjiang, like, and so on. So, so do, do you think to a certain extent, like, are they getting what they actually were planning for? In, in the book, I tried to, you know, have that analysis and context about why Beijing might actually be acting against its interests, really, because it's gotten so extreme and really so emotional that there's evidence that there's backlash um, that affects Chinese companies and the Chinese economy. Um, the fact that so many con- uh, so many companies are deciding to not headquarter in Hong Kong anymore because of the national security law, it shows that it seems that Beijing was willing to sacrifice the uh, economic financial success of Hong Kong as a global um, hub by prioritizing the need, uh, the want for political control and what they call stability in the wake of so many mass protests in the city. So, you know, speaking with some of my, like Chinese friends who are kind of more moderate, like they kind of regret that things have gotten so, so heated 
where it's tough uh, right now, even for Chinese companies, like small scale entrepreneurs to function. There's just so many different regulations month after month regulating, you know, the VPN use, regulating where they can sort their customers' data, um, IP issues, all things like that. It's affecting, I think, most I haven't spoken really honestly to a Chinese business person, entrepreneur who is happy with the increasingly uh, authoritarian bent of the CCP as of late. Well, let's close our discussion, you know, in Washington, D.C., where you finished the book up. And one of the things that you talked about was the lack of the knowledge deficits there, the lack of lived experience in China. And you mentioned that that nuance has become a bad word in Washington. And, and I think that was absolutely fascinating. And how many of the decisions among the hawks in Washington are being made on incomplete or inaccurate information about China? And this is something that we've been following in other countries, is the fact is that, that in many foreign ministries, they just don't have enough China expertise. They're not drawing on, as we've talked about earlier on, the diaspora and people of experience. Talk to us about on your journeys about these knowledge deficits regarding to China and the level of expertise that people have in these various countries in terms of formulating their policies. So the situation in D.C., I've learned more about as the book was launched and I was speaking with friends and colleagues and readers in the U.S. And, and they say that this problem of the lack of lived experience and knowledge deficits about China um, are continue to be very pronounced and major problems under the Biden administration. It was just not the case that uh, Trump, with his oversimplified narratives and, you know, very sweeping attacks on China where he would conflate the Chinese people and the Chinese state, it's not the case that once he was out of office that some of the structural problems disappeared. They existed before Trump. People tell me that if they are interested in working for the government at all in the U.S., that they avoid going to China. They avoid having relationships with Chinese people because they know that might compromise their ability to get senior levels of government jobs uh, because they wouldn't be cleared for security clearance. Um, and this is particularly the case for Americans of Chinese descent. People have said that at job interviews, they're asked, are you a Chinese spy? Are you loyal to China? And their counterparts who, who, aren't, who aren't of Chinese descent don't get asked these questions. And I was just talking with, you know, longtime China expert Bill Bishop. And he said when he returned to D.C. or he settled in D.C. after living in Beijing, uh, people told him that he shouldn't even bother applying uh, for a job in the government because his time and long expertise in China wouldn't make him qualified. Um, so I really think that is very counterproductive and explains a lot when we do have many, many great China experts, but they're having trouble for different reasons having the year of government. There is a systemic exclusion of them and there's a systemic suspicion and hostility, especially towards experts who come from a Chinese cultural background. They are treated as potential enemies and their loyalties are questioned. So it's very demoralizing for them when they want to contribute and are not able to. I've heard that 
a lower level, like researchers are working for prominent American politicians. Um, but when they provide, say, really detailed reports and briefings, um, certain politicians seem to just skim it and pick and choose what they want to see to just continue promoting um, their narratives on China that can sometimes be just a bit skewed or sometimes, you know, completely wrong, including falsehood, falsehoods. Um, so I think the crux of all that is that people with lived experience and deep knowledge about China are not getting opportunities to really contribute and shape different countries' policies on China. The book is China Unbound, A New World Disorder. You can get it everywhere. Um, I actually bought the Kindle edition and the audio edition. And by the way, on your audio edition, you had a reader who was excellent in pronouncing Chinese names, which is not something you take for granted on Audible, because a lot of times they just hack it to pieces. So kudos to selecting a wonderful reader. It's available on Amazon in all the various formats. And Joanna, if people want to follow what you're doing in, and also new voices, can you connect people with us? What are the Twitter handles that are best? I am uh, online on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. You can just search for my name, Joanna Chu, and I'll pop up, uh, especially on Twitter, <laughs> where I'm more active and you know happy to chat and talk about books and answer any of your questions. And also new voices. I think new voices is one of the answers to some of the disorderly state of relations we see between the West and China today, because we are a network of over 600 uh, female non-binary BIPOC experts on China doing all sorts of really great uh, work. And historically, again, these experts have faced systemic exclusion. Um, so to get connected with new voices, just NU Voices, uh, we're again on Twitter, Facebook, on our website, newvoices.com. You can read our stories, uh, profiling and celebrating the work of uh, diverse experts on China, uh, as well as look for our podcast, which comes out twice monthly, and spotlights the work and research uh, and creative work of diverse experts on China. Joanna, we got to let you go. Two minutes under your, your scheduled departure time. We want to thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on the book. And uh, we're looking forward to following your next adventures. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So, Kobus, we started the conversation at the beginning of the show about these different perceptions of China based on whether you're in the global north or whether you're in the global south. Let's be very upfront. This book is the perception from the West, as she pointed out, and she went to Western countries. So it is a basically an articulation of those Pew Research points on how negative things are. So I would recommend anybody who reads this book to have a really an open mind and to remember that this book does not represent the totality of global perceptions of China. And that's a really important thing, that Afrobarometer, that Arab barometer, and that those data points from here in Southeast Asia really com complicate the narrative about whether China is popular. And oftentimes in the US and European mainstream press, they will use shorthand that China's popularity around the world is plummeting. And I always have to put my hand up when I'm talking to people saying, uh, no, that's not exactly the point. That's definitely the case in Germany, Holland, the US, Canada, South Korea, Japan. But that is not the case everywhere. And that's a really important caveat when you're reading this book. 
I think so, but at the at the same time, what I what I think is also really important to to take into account, and this is why I think the book is is, is such an important contribution, is that that there's there's these different layers in in global South populations and among elites um, and and the kind of middle class, like the people that that you would think of as as kind of people who can kind of make their way into the what you would some some what's sometimes called the global middle class, um, you know, kind of people, kind of middle class people in South in places like South Africa, for example, or in Argentina or you know and, and, and so on um, they so not the poorest of the poor in the global south but you know kind of like aspirational people who are who are kind of hooked into global conversations they are very influenced by these kind of discourses coming from western capitals um, and you know kind of and I think I think there's this like it, it, it would be very interesting at some stage for, for a media studies person to to really unpack something like the Afrobarometer surveys and to really kind of see you know, kind of like how things change according to class, um, you know, kind of within those societies. So so these discourses coming from places like Australia have very, very certainly have impacts in parts of the global south, even if they don't necessarily translate into, into these kind of broad-based reactions from the entire population in those countries. It's so interesting that you bring that up because earlier this week, we showcased a fascinating one-hour primetime TV show on Dongfang Dianshi, which is Dragon TV in Shanghai, that Wu Peng, who's the top diplomat for Sub-Saharan Africa, along with Professor Zhang Weiwei. And Zhang Weiwei is a distinguished professor from Fudan University, very well known in the China-Africa space in China. And they were doing a this whole discussion about China-Africa relations. This is typical in the run-up to FOCAC summits, where all of a sudden African issues on Chinese media get a lot more prominence and visibility. And something that Professor Zhang said, which caught my attention, I'd like to get your take on it, echoes what you've just said. So when the moderator asked Professor Zhang if China is popular or public opinion about China and Africa, what was the, the case? He said something very interesting. He said, among African governments, solid. You and I both know that. Elite to elite, government to government, no problem. And then he said, even among African publics, China is very, very popular. The Afro-barometer data bears that out. Now, you wouldn't know that from looking at social media, which amplifies negativity. We know that from what Facebook is doing. And by the way, Facebook is putting almost no controls on countries outside of the U.S., in terms of moderating the negativity. So what the problems we have in the U.S. with amplifying hate are just exaggerated in other countries where there is no moderation of that. What Professor Zhang went on to say, and let me get to the point here, was that it's because of Western media, and then he added Western NGOs who are fomenting anti-China sentiment among African publics. <laughs> what do you think of that uh, that assessment? Well, you're laughing, but you were just saying that it's Western media narratives that are fueling some of the hostility. So, you know, it seems to echo what you've been saying. Yes, no, definitely. There, there's, there is an element of truth there, but to... <laughs> to I'm laughing because because what I was talking about is this kind of global kind of opinion verse, right? Kind of like where where um, you know the, the the way that the way that certain kind of set ideas, you know, 
kind of like morph in in in, in, in a kind of international kind of conversation sphere. You know, the way that that people used to be very happy to make fun of Britney Spears, and now the the you know kind of the consensus has shifted to Britney Spears is is a victim, right? Kind of for example, that that kind of flow and morphing of ideas of of an international kind of like like uh, you know kind of conversation. Uh, it's kind of an international evolution of of ideas, and and I think that that you know that kind of like drifting of ideas from from country to country was what I was referring to. What what made me laugh of this is this idea of NGOs somehow somehow kind of like pushing any conversation in any direction. You know, it's like if you if you think about if you if you think about you know kind of like how like the the climate crisis, right? Like if you think about the billions of articles and think pieces and op eds and like interviews NGOs have put out, and it's not moving the needle at all. So you know, kind of so I think it's ridiculous actually. Well, let let's be let's be fair here because suspicion of NGOs in the US and Europe runs very deep as well. Let's talk about all the conspiracies about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation related to COVID-19 vaccines, certainly Soros and the Open Society Foundation, those guys have have an enormous amount of suspicion hanging over them. So the Chinese certainly you know, they've never had a good relationship with NGOs because those are independent civil society well, actors that are outside the control of the Communist Party. But even in conspiracy-minded America and Europe, there's suspicion of NGOs as well for driving narratives. Well, exactly, exactly. It's, those NGOs are only useful as symbols, right? They're, not, they're only useful as, as kind of as straw men and boogeymen. They're not useful in the right. actual, they, they have so much less impact in their actual, right. their actual lives. You know, kind of, and in that sense, like, I think, I think one of the interesting things that Joanna's work shows is that we're, it's not a necessarily a situation where, where, you know, kind of where China, even though that we're in this kind of extremely polarized situation where both in China and in the US, everyone is, is so invested in trying to somehow show that the two are super different, like they're completely diametrically different. But in lots of ways, they're very similar in the sense that, that you know, you see these similar kind of patterns, including like scare stories about the, the kind of Illuminati-like influence of NGOs, you know, kind of is, is something that, that's true on both sides, um, you know. And, you know, so, so in that sense, the, the, the kind of insularity, the paranoia, the kind of, you know, the, the, the you know, kind of all, all of these kind of like aspects that we're seeing kind of really strongly emerging in this kind of new Cold War era is frequently they're kind of they're, they're on both sides yeah. of the line, and that actually makes it so much harder to you know to kind of to get any kind of nuance into the conversation because they're really both pulling and you know kind of uh, like pushing like working against that kind of nuance from both sides. And it just feels like the attitudes on both sides are hardening, and and as Joanna pointed out in Washington you're never going to get fired for amping up the anti-China rhetoric. And that seems to be the same in Beijing. You're never going to get fired for amping up the anti-US rhetoric. And again, I think the question for us when we look at countries that are in the global South or in Africa or in South America here in Southeast Asia is how do you batten down the hatches? And you're going to have to because it feels like it's not going to get better anytime soon. Just the, the attitude that Biden had in in Glasgow when he was talking about China not being there and how kind of outwardly dismissive he was. It just, it's not productive. And at the same time, then Wang Wenbing, the, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, really firing back very hard. And you're just like, wow, where is this going? How does this end? Yeah, and 
I can tell you how it's, this ends. It ends in wildfires and the melting of the Arctic. Well, it That's ends okay. in that. And, and, you know, in some ways, okay, it also, there's an enormous amount of military hardware sitting about a thousand kilometers north of me in the South China Sea. So, you know, there's a lot of places where this, we have to be worried about this. Yeah, but, but you know, kind of, I, I, you know, I, I agree with you, but like, I, I think one, one of the last, you know, and, 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 and you know, we, we obviously know that, that climate itself is a massive conflict vector. So the two, the two are not separate, but like what, you know, kind of what, 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 what struck, what struck me over the last year or two is that every, everything that, that people were, that climate scientists were, were predicting that's going to be happening in like 2090 is happening now, <laughs> you know? Um, and the, the, the kind of acceleration of the crisis kind of means that, that I think in, like there's going to be at some stage a tipping point where I, I agree with you that there's, that, that conflict is a very real danger, but I think there's also going to be a tipping point where it's just going to become so chaotic you know, kind of in, in terms of in terms of of the compound kind of disasters, kind of hitting societies, you know, from all from all sides, that you know that that in a way the 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 how can I put it like the you know in in a way like by, by the time that we realized that the new Cold War was a crock of poop, it'll be too, much too late. You know, kind of like by by then, like every it'll be all everyone for themselves, and like societies will will kind of like the the, the collapse of societies will be the dominant kind of issue. Um, you know, because because it was so impossible to kind of work together. Now that 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 is my fear. I think that's bearing out based on what we've seen over the past week or so in both the G20 summit in Rome and now in the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, that these international fora are not up to the task to solve the problem. Because at the end of the day, it feels like domestic politics are going to, to rule the day in the United States and China. The Chinese, you know, they will say we've got all these big ambitious numbers, but yet right now what we're seeing is just huge amounts of coal and they've got a power supply problem that's going on. They've got to fix those problems quickly and at the same time, we're seeing the difficulties that the Biden administration has with its own party. It's not even just the Republicans in getting the climate measures through the infrastructure bill, which is still stuck in limbo. And there's just not an enormous appetite on both sides to make yeah. massive concessions in daily life in the name of climate. Again, if you you know, kind of, if you listen to any either of those sides, they represent themselves as being completely different than the other one. But in in reality, they end up being so similar. You know, kind of these. It's it's like the the structural impossibility of 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 trying of of imagining a post carbon world. You know, it's like it plays out almost exactly the same. You know, on the two sides. It does. So we're going to end the show there on a very depressing note. Normally, we try to end on a positive note, but today it's going to be a little bit more depressing. Once again, I do recommend Joanna's book, if you only with the caveat that you consider the fact that, again, it is one slice of this of this debate. It is not a totality of it. And she doesn't put it out to be that. She was very clear that this is the Western view. And that Western view is decidedly negative, but it does not necessarily, it definitely does not account for the myriad of other views on China that exist within the global South, a whole panoply of views. So I, I highly recommend it. We'll put links into the show notes for you to purchase the book. We'd love to hear from you and what you think of it. And again, if you'd like to join our Patreon community, I'm having chats almost every day. I'm trying to do every day, but it's uh, it takes up quite a bit of time. But I'm posting stuff two or three times a week. And again, our new weekly digest is available on Fridays. You can get that at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. And of course, if you want to get a subscription to the China Africa Project, get all the coverage that we're doing, including the daily email newsletter that we're putting out. 
on the day-to-day coverage. We've got a Cliff in Nairobi, Kobus in Johannesburg, and we've got a China editor out there, and then myself putting all of this together, so small team. And then next year, we've got some cool new things planned to add even more t- people to the team, so it's just going to keep getting better and better. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe, and you can try it out free for a month. See if you like it. If you don't like it, cancel anytime. We won't take offense. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll see you again next week. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.